Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Andy, great you can join us. Thank you. Chris, absolute pleasure. It's nice to be here. Yes, we were just having a chat and um, it's always the way on the podcast. It, it, my guests are always so, you know, we share things in common, people that have done stuff in this life, I suppose. And yeah, and out, out of that sharedness comes great. Co- oh, there's my phone going off. Sorry. Out of that, out of that sharedness comes great conversation. And uh, Sometimes I forget to push record on the podcast. <laughs> I think I've lost all that, but that's gone from history now. So, my gosh, we hooked up on LinkedIn. We did. And I'm very fortunate that I meet people through LinkedIn that have such rich histories and experiences as yours, Andy. Um, Red Arrows, now a, a commercial airline pilot. Anyone who grew up of my era remembers watching Airplane, and, and which was a spoof <laughs> on all the um, jumbo jet movies of the 70s and, and early 80s. And obviously, I think pretty much most of us have been <laughs> on a 747 or a, or a, or a, or a big, a big aircraft. And, yeah, yeah. And I have, I probably have a million questions to ask just based on what I've just said. So <laughs> fire away, Chris. Well, where do we start? Um, how did you get into flying? Well, of course, that's a, that's a great question, isn't it? And um, one which I've been asked many times. It's something I wanted to do, you know, from a very young age. And as far back as I can remember, when I was at primary school, we went on a, a school trip. So I must have been about... I don't know, eight or nine, never been flying before, never been abroad before. Um, I was brought up in North Wales and we went on a school trip to Liverpool Airport, Speak Airport as it was known then. And we, uh, my class had a flight in a Viscount, which was a small airliner, propeller driven aircraft. And we flew along the North Wales coast. Um, And I just remember being totally fascinated by being able to look down and see areas that I knew from the air. It was just totally fascinating. And I think that sowed the seed in the mind of an eight-year-old boy. And from then on, I was I was hooked, really. And I, you know, joined the Air Cadets, um, which gave me a chance to actually fly um, and sort of engendered my interest in aviation throughout my time at school. Um, and um, I was lucky enough to be selected by the Air Force. Um, well, I went for some tests at age 16. And then I was accepted at 17. So when I left school after my A-levels, I was um, lucky enough to join the Air Force and start um, start pilot training. So that's it in a nutshell. It goes back to the age of eight. Most of my guests, including myself, not that I'm my guest, but including <laughs> myself, uh, we, we were all rejected by the RAF. So we joined the, the other, the rest of the military. Um, <laughs> It's amazing all the SAS guys I speak to all say I tried to get in the RAF when I left school but they wouldn't have me. Very high standards. <laughs> <laughs> well um, I think we're both friends with Tim Tim Davies aren't we? 
Yes, yes. Very lovely, lovely man. Um, we've become firm friends through this this podcast in business. And, yeah. And um, yeah, you, it, following Tim, it really brings it home to you the kind of attitudes that are, are in play in this arena. Um, yeah. I've heard talk of snobbery and, and, and this sort of thing. So how was it for you getting through the recruiting process? Into, into the Air Force? Mm. It was um, it's an interesting one, because I think, I look back on it now, and I was, I was pretty young and naive, I think, because I'd come from being, I suppose, a fairly, a fairly big fish in a small pond, you know, in school and perhaps in the Air Cadets, to being nothing. Um, and I was very naive. But because I'd come straight from school, I think it was, I was still quite adaptable. Um, I'd come into an, an institution, if you like, from one to the other. So although it was really a very steep learning curve at, at the beginning, the interview process and the first few months, I, I found it okay. Hard work, but okay, because I think I was still adaptable. And as I say, you know, still naive at, at age, well, 17, 18. Yeah, I've seen comments online of some of the questions that people have been asked before they were rejected, and it, it, they're so subjective, <laughs> you know. Really difficult, yeah. You could yeah. really imagine that to that instructor or to that um, got RF guy in the recruiting office, this was like, you know, how many air shows have you been to? That that was a you know his yeah. his way of marking it. Yeah. Um, they look at you know they do look at that obviously they want you to be interested in aircraft and they'll ask you some specific things about the air force how many squadrons it has that sort of thing but also current affairs uh i think it was more of a just getting a picture of the individual so yes you've got to be interested in aviation obviously but is he interested in anything else and of course one of the big things they, they talk about is team skills um and is this guy going to be part of you know is he going to be a good member of a team and subsequently, you know, maybe a good a good leader, uh, and as, and so they really concentrate. I remember this because I used to play a lot of rugby, being brought up in North Wales, and they really, really pushed on the on the team stuff. Um, very interested in in what you did at school as part of a team. So, and uh, and you know, I look back on that, and actually, it's true. Throughout my Air Force life, on a squadron, you're part of a team, quite a small team, and even now, you know, the sort of flying I do on an airliner, you've got a small team, a cohesive team in the cockpit. So, um, so I look back and think, actually, that was a really relevant, a really relevant question. Mm. I guess um, it doesn't factor in though, that you can have awful people in a team. <laughs> That's very true. And you probably know that, you know, you get somebody like that, it really brings the team down, doesn't it? Yeah, I've got a, you've done, you do quite a bit of speaking, don't you? I do, yes, I do. I use, I use the red arrows as a template for team skills mm. and and excellence and also talk about leadership as well. So and the we can talk about it later, if you like, but the red arrow selection procedure is, is quite interesting. And the idea, of course, is to try and weed out those people that we don't want who are going to bring the team down. Yes. The reason I mention it is I've been asked to do a speech at the end of this month. And one of the subjects is is teamwork which I'm guessing for a lot of sort of people in the commercial sector is it, it's just a buzzword that probably isn't really well understood because um, there's so many different dynamics going on in a team, aren't there? And not all of them are very pleasant when you're in the military. 
Um, my experience was I took a team of people fundraising in Scandinavia when we were going to work in Africa. Yeah. So we were going to go and work in sub-Saharan Africa. I was going to Mozambique to become basically school teachers down there. And we had to fundraise money on the streets of Scandinavia by selling postcards. Um, might sound a bit bizarre, folks, but it's just what what we what we did. And, <laughs> and the way I saw the team, because I was so I the first day I did it, I almost took myself away and sat down and thought, I can't do this. When you approach 10 strangers and they all go yep. like that and walk straight past you, it's it's a tough learning curve right and you've got to have your wits about you to be able to you know put this in frame and see that it's nothing to do with you right so when I when I sussed that then I sussed a method that I could pretty much approach anyone and they couldn't leave me they had to they had to say something to me and I would quite cleverly give them four options all of which meant either give give me all the money or just just give me a li- at least give <laughs> yeah. me a donation or you're going to look like a massive, you know what, right? <laughs> so I, I'm using that system, plus the fact that, like a like an oyster fisherman, you know, you've got to get 100 to get the one, you know, to get the pearl, you've got to open 100 oysters, right? So mm-hmm. I just used that principle, so I didn't take it personally. Got so good, they made me a team leader to take a team around around Finland, of all places. Wonderful country, hello, hello Finland. Um and what I realized is you get people that just pick the ball up and run with it. They're fine. If anything, they just need a bit of sort of guidance of not, 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 not to go too 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 bonsai. Yeah. Then you get the people that they're up for it. They just maybe not, their skills aren't quite good. So you need to put something in there. Then you get the people that they just feel they can't do it. And my idea is in that dynamic, they're the people that you need to spend your time with. Yeah. And what I did, Andy, is is we had targets at the end of the day. Every student had to hit, let's say, £300 worth of postcards selling. And so I got the team together and went, right, we're a team. The true meaning of team is we put all our money in the same pot, right? And just mm-hmm. so long as the people that are struggling, that, you know, that, Strong, as long as you don't disappear and take yourself off to a to a cafe um we'll divide that money at the end of the day and just a simple thing like that gave everybody um you know well recognition yeah for their efforts yeah it gave them encouragement and it gave them a goal so long as they stay here chris is going to split this money up and we're all going to go to africa and yeah Sorry, I've gone on a bit there. but I know, think... because you, I was listening very carefully because you touched on a lot of the values that I talk about as well. You know, giving people a goal, making people feel inclusive. It's really important, isn't it? Yeah. I'll give you a couple of um, examples of some of the things I talk about. Um, one of them is admitting your mistakes. And people are quite reluctant to do that, particularly in business. So when we land from a Red Arrows um practice or even a display every display that we uh, that we do is videoed is filmed so that we can look at it and you know critique each other but the first thing the leader does is stand up in front of the team and he admits the mistakes that he's just made 
And that sends a powerful message, doesn't it? Well, two messages really. One, um, it's okay to make mistakes, uh, but more importantly, it's, it's okay to talk about them. So, uh, and that sends a message to the rest of the team. Uh, and they're, they're not afraid to say, yeah, I did this wrong, I did that wrong. Um, and it's not all about um, what went wrong. I, I look at sort of a debrief like that, a team collective, whatever you want to call it, a wash up. You can say that went really well, guys. What did we do right this time to make it go so well? So I really concentrate on that. We call it the debrief in the military, don't we? But it's called many things. But uh, And um, a lot of businesses I talk to are really surprised. They don't have wash ups. They don't get it together at the end of the week or every fortnight and talk about things. And I think it's a massively important thing to, to get together and discuss. It's the only way you can improve is talk about things that went well, things that didn't go well, and then you know come up with a plan just like you did to change things and make it better. Yeah, we're in funny times. I think we said this earlier. The, the way culture, certainly in commerce or in business is going, it, it's really mm. not good. I mean, now it's become de rigueur to get hold of stuff, finally get hold of the person you've been trying to get hold of. For, for my recent case, it's been six months, right? Wow. Oh, yeah. Hi, Chris. Yeah, got your email, but uh, your phone number was wrong. And you're like, oh, really? Mm. You know, that that doesn't wash with people that have been in, you know, situations where your decision making is life and death yeah you know, and you got you got to own it pretending that <laughs> yes. you didn't you know not replying to an email uh, or then saying it's because someone's phone it, it's we've become that sort of culture haven't we we have no you're right and it's a shame and it's those people who've been able to adapt in these strange times i think that will do well once it's all over yeah rewards bad personalities doesn't it mm. yeah 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 very true gosh i guess we should get back to 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 flying but thank you i've got my speech worked out for the end of the month now there you go talk about debriefing <laughs> <laughs> yes um i don't know where to begin so when you you went to the recruiting office what what position did, were you going for and did you get your first sort of choice? Well, one of the things they ask you there is that you've, you apply as a pilot. And I remember this quite clearly. So they said, well, what would you do if, if you failed? You know, would you accept a position as um, a navigator or air traffic controller? And I didn't want that. I just wanted to be a pilot. So my answer was that um, if I didn't get in this time, I would try again. And if I didn't get in as a pilot in the Air Force, I'd go and try and be a pilot somewhere else. Um, and I was really just totally fixated on that. And I remember thinking I hadn't really got a plan B. I'd got a few offers from university, but I didn't really know what I was going to do at university. I just wanted to fly. So I think, you know, you have to have that that sort of burning desire to go and do something. And I remember I did, did have that at a very, uh, a very young age. So... Um, in answer to your question, yeah, it was position as a pilot, and that was it. It was the be all and end all for me. That's all I wanted to do. Wow, you sound like a man after my own own heart. <laughs> when I decide on something, it's like no, it's that or nothing else. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's awful when I buy stuff because 
I just look at the best item and it's <laughs> usually ridiculously expensive. Yeah, and you've this got item, to have... If it's a pair of running shoes or something, it's like these Tesco turbos will do just as well, but I've got to have the 400 quid ones. <laughs> <laughs> Were you, um, had you your, your private license when you joined? Yes, interestingly, through the Air Cadets, actually, I was given, um, they call it flying scholarship. So effectively, they pay for a number of hours for you to do some private flying. And I managed to get my private pilot's license before I got my driving license. So I was 17, I think. And um, yeah, that was that was that was great. They sent, sent me off to Leicester Aero Club for the summer. And uh, I did, I think it was about 40 hours flying. And of course, this was amazing for, for this young lad. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I carried on. I flew my friends and my family um, for, for quite a few years, really. Just held my private pilot's license. And then it all became too difficult to try and keep that going as well as the Air Force flying. But um, yes, it, I did. I did get my private pilot's license. What's your opinion then of um, the FAA versus the CAA? So Civil Aviation Authority being the UK, yes. FAA being America. The reason I ask is I got my license in America. Uh, I passed my test within, I think, three and a half weeks. And that that yeah. was learning every single day, I think, I think, including Sundays. But it's still a very short time to be able. And, and it's not. You don't sort of cut corners or anything. It's just you get a lot more flying time in America because yeah. the weather windows are so predictable. Yes. You know, I was in Florida. It's going to be brilliant sunshine all day long. Come five o'clock, guaranteed, you get these massive cloud heads start start building, and then down comes yeah. the rain. Yeah. Whereas the UK, I understand the the weather can can really have an effect um, uh, on how many hours flying. You know how often you can get up, mm. and our airspace is a lot more crowded as well, isn't it? It is, and I think you've hit the nail on the head there, really, because it is a smaller country, obviously. We have some pretty awful weather, don't we? And the airspace is quite tight, you know. We've got zones around all the major airports. Um, we've got airways that crisscross the country. So in terms of rules and regulations, we have to be fairly, fairly strict. Uh, but it's the weather, I think, that's the dictator there, Chris. As you said, you know, I've got friends and colleagues who've done military training in America and um, they fly every day in beautiful weather um, and then they come back to the UK or to anywhere in Europe and they get they're quite surprised that you know it's really restrictive and it's hard work when the weather's bad so I think the weather is, is the major difference between doing your your license in the UK and, and perhaps in the, in the States. Yeah do you think there's the, the do you think the standards are Different. I mean, British, not trying to sound like, you know, Anglo-centric here or anything, but <laughs> we, we do kind of do things the proper way, don't we? It's yeah. just, it, it's, I mean, for example, if you go to Thailand, it's not unusual. You see five people on a motorbike. That's the whole family, including a baby under one arm and no helmets or anything maybe it's changed now I, I was first in Thailand like 20 odd years ago but and I mean that sort of stuff doesn't wash here does it no no 
<clears throat> you're absolutely right. Um, you know, I think that there's nothing wrong with doing your license in America, but I do think um, it, we're probably slightly more rule bound here for a good reason. So it is slightly more difficult, more involved. Um, um, but as I say, nothing wrong with an FAA license either. No, and the thing I like about my license is, is, is it's for life, whereas yes. the UK one is only, is it for three years or something? Yes, yes. and you have to, you know, do, do a certain amount of flying each year, which I'm sure you do in America as well, just to keep that license um, valid, yeah. Well, in America, you can let it go fallow, so let's say 10 years. Yeah. And then you can rock up at a, an airstrip, go into the flying school, and... Um, They'll take you on a check test. As long as you can demonstrate, which I doubt you would after a 10-year layoff, but but <laughs> technically, as long as you can demonstrate you can fly the aircraft um, safely and, and handle the radio procedure, yeah. you're, you're, you're good to go again. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> I've been uh, ticked off by air traffic control in America. It's... It, on the one hand it's really safe andy isn't it but on the other hand it's bloody dangerous up there yeah yeah they use these aircraft in in america because it's such a big country like the, we use cars really in many ways and you can just there's so many little airfields around which is great but you can just hop in and fly fly around um and a lot of the time it's it's free airspace but you know if my airline i'm going into new york or boston or somewhere like that you'll have dozens of little airplanes underneath you flying around so yeah it's 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 slightly freer i would say over there definitely definitely when did you last fly is it fairly recently no i i'm i'm a bit of a bucket list person andy right and i don't mean that's no disrespect to myself i just i want to do everything in this life right yeah i don't necessarily have the money to follow it up <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to dive off the cliff in Acapulco like Elvis did in the movie when I was six, you know. Uh, yeah. I wanted to um live in the Amazon jungle and catch piranhas like I read about in the books as a child, right? That's why I talk a lot about about for, for our friends at home as well. I'm always talking about read books, you know, it, it enrich your life. Absolutely. Um I watched the film Point Break back in the, the original Point Break. I think it was mm. back in the 90s. And when I saw what skydiving was, that you can just chuck a parachute on and throw yourself out of a plane and then fall for a, over a minute before pulling your chute. I want to do that, right? <laughs> this is just how my brain works. And I've yeah. also got this thing where I never say never. If I want to do something, I'd never consider that I might not be able to do it for me. Yeah, it's always a challenge waiting to happen, right? I agree um, with that. My two, the only two sort of, I've had to extend my bucket list now because I meet such amazing people. <laughs> so I chatted to Nims Dye, the Gurkha stroke SBS legend the other day who climbed all 14 of the world's highest peaks wow. in under, under six months, breaking, taking seven years off the record. And I'd love to climb Everest. I've got all the books on my shelf here. Me too. That's something. <laughs> Me too. And I'd like to um, ski to the South Pole. I'd like to do more than that, actually, but <laughs> I've got to, got to have some acknowledgement of your limitations. 
It's, and it's good to have ambition though, Chris, isn't it? It's good to have goals and dreams. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think as a kid, who didn't look up in the sky at an aeroplane and think, I wonder what it's like to fly that? At least I did. Maybe that's not normal, but I just thought, God, wouldn't that be great? And for some reason, no, I'll tell you what it was. When I did my first skydive, which was in New Zealand, a place called Lake Taupo, um, it was the first part, I should say, of the AFF Advanced Freefall course. So I did my very first part in New Zealand. And the, one of the girls that was on the plane with me, we got chatting and she was a pilot. She was English and she was a pilot. And I'm just, talk to me, <laughs> tell me everything. Yeah. I want to know, this is just what I'm like, you know? I want to know everything. What's yeah. it like taking off? Is it scary landing? How do you work the radio? What And, and that just kind of rekindled that thought that I had as a kid, that, that what's it like to fly a plane? And then at the next sort of, or when the opportunity arose, I had a few quid in the bank. Um, I just bought myself an aircraft magazine, looked at the back, the advertising pages in the back, and there was a flight school. Price looked okay. It was in Florida. That was it. So Don't do it. So, sorry, a bit long-winded again, but to answer your question, Andy, it was, I, I did it, I think, in 2005. Okay. And I'm just more than happy to, you know, if, if yeah. I get a bit of money in the bank in the future, I'll undoubtedly go and do it again. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm, I'm just absolutely privileged to be, a, to have my little experience of the aviation no, community. It does get into your blood. That's for sure. I mean, it's been my, my life. Um, I've, I've had a flying license for over 40 years now, Chris. I know, I know I don't look that old, but I have. And, uh, I it's, you uh, older. <laughs> <laughs> no, 40 years and you think, wow. And, uh, you know, military, commercial. Um, yeah, so it does get into your blood and it's something that, um, you know, it's, it's made me who I am, given me what I've got. It's, it's been fantastic, really. Let's get into the nitty gritty then, because mm. um, what what we... What was your first apparatus in the RAF then? Is that the right word or am I just making that up? <laughs> Sounds like a chemistry experiment, doesn't it? But I know what you mean. No, it, um, it's, I should say it's that, you know, that film, Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio, yeah, do, yeah. where he pretends to be an airline pilot and flies around the country as a pretend pilot. Yeah. And he learns <laughs> that one of the things the pilots say is, what what apparatus are you on and it, and it means what are you flying <laughs> i don't know <laughs> well first apparatus was the uh, well after flying training i did flying training on the uh, jet provost which is no longer in service and a lovely airplane called the hawk which is the aircraft the red arrows flies great little uh, airplane um and those are the two sort of training aircraft and from there you go to the to the front line and my frontline airplane was an airplane called the lightning which is an amazing amazing piece of uh, engineering it was designed and built in the in the 50s the late 50s um and it served for about 30 years it, it came out of service in 1988 so i was lucky to fly it in the latter stages of its life really but this thing was a single seat um fighter its job was to intercept intruding aircraft anybody uh intruding into uk airspace 
didn't have a great range really in terms of, of how long it could fly, but it was phenomenally fast and very, very powerful. It could fly in excess of 50,000 feet, twice the speed of sound, uh, just had one seat. It was just me sat there in this monster of an airplane. So I was really privileged to, to have flown um, the Lightning. It was just a fantastic experience. Hard work. Uh, you've got a little radar that you have to operate as well as fly the airplane at the same time um, to get you behind the enemy aircraft. And then you would, in theory, shoot your uh, missile or your gun if it came to that. But um, luckily, you know, I never had to. So I flew, flew the thing for four years. It was phenomenal. Really, really good uh, experience. So, yeah, that was my first apparatus the the lightning apparatus <laughs> it's just our word now yeah it is it's, it's <laughs> all the, the other word. pilots are going what That's the it. what are they talking about what the hell <laughs> was that was that a jet or was that a propeller yeah it's uh, it's a jet so it's quite an unusual looking airplane it has two big jet engines but one on top of the other so not uh, not on the wing so they uh, you're effectively sitting on the um, on top of these two big rolls royce engines with very highly swept wings um, I don't know if you can see behind me, actually, there's a picture on my wall, um, just over my right shoulder. That's, mm. um, that's a lightning there. It's probably a little bit too far away for you to see, but um, yeah, it was just an incredible airplane. Um, and as I say, quite iconic, really. So it was a real privilege. I look back on it now at, at what a privilege it was to have flown it. It's, it's fantastic. Are they still in service? No, I went out of service quite a while ago. Uh, late 80s and it was replaced by the tornado and subsequently by the typhoon so the typhoon now is the equivalent of the lightning in the early 80s but wow. similar performance technology obviously moved on a lot but performance wise it was a great airplane so was was that a bomber then no it was um, i suppose you describe it as an, an air defense fighter so it didn't carry bombs it carried missiles and guns to shoot down other aircraft mm. um we left the bombing to to uh, other aircraft types like the Harrier, the Jaguar. Uh, they would do the the bombing, and we'd go and shoot down. We were their top cover, effectively. Because mm. that's the the mistake a lot of people make. When I spoke to Tim, he enlightened me to the fact that a tornado, or at least in that role, isn't a fighter jet. It's a, yeah, um, quite surprising. Yeah, yeah. And then when you think back to the um, the Gulf War stories. Was it John, John and John who got shot down? Two Johns, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, and obviously so they became they, quite vulnerable, you know, they're in, they're in a, a bomber rather than a fighter. So they are quite vulnerable when they're doing their, their bombing run. Um, quite, um, yeah, quite vulnerable to attack. And what did you move on to from, from there? Well, from the Lightning, I did, um, I don't know how it works in the Army and, and the Marines and so on, but we tend to do tours of about four years, three or four years. So I did four years on the Lightning, and then, um, oh, sorry, this, my phone's going off now. I, I moved to become a flying instructor uh, on the Hawk uh, at a place called RAF Valley in Anglesey. So um, it was the Hawk that the Red Arrows, uh, the aircraft the Red Arrows fly. So I was teaching student pilots now who are coming through the system. I've just done it myself, so it's gone full circle. And it was something I didn't want to do to start with, um, I wanted to stay flying the lightning. They said, no, you've, your time's come. You've got to go and be an instructor. But I, I think it probably did me the world of good. It was, um, the flying was, was great. I had to be able to do the flying to be able to, to teach it. And it gave me a qualification. And I think it made me uh, 
far more self-critical than I had been um, because you had to demonstrate something to the student in order for him to be able to, to copy you uh, and to do it. So it was good flying. I met loads of guys going through the courses and made lots of, lots of friends. Um, and I did that for four years. And it was that really that led me onto, um, onto my next job, which was which the Red Arrows. It was um, the introduction through flying the Hawk at Valley, going to various air shows, meeting the Red Arrows. And I thought, perhaps this is something that I actually could do. Um, and in terms of experience, I'm kind of in that bracket now. So, so it was a really good job. I did go instructing in the end. It was a good step. Red Arrows is kind of the cream of the cream for an RAF fast jet pilot, is it not? Well, it is. I think it's, um, it's something that I would say most people would love to do. Not everybody. It's not everybody's cup of tea. But yeah, I think it's something that if you asked any fast jet pilot in the RAF, would they like to join the Red Arrows? I'm sure the answer would be yes. Uh, it, it certainly was the pinnacle of my flying. It's the best flying I've ever done. Um, and um, yeah, we can talk a little bit more about it really, but it was, yeah, it was a phenomenal three years. How is it fitting into such a, a, a tight, a small tight knit professional community who have a lot of tradition and, and, and also, you know, they want things to be, to, to be right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'll talk a little bit about the selection if you like, Chris, because people do find that quite, quite interesting. So, for every, every year, the team of nine pilots, they change three. So it's a third of the team change every year. And for those three places, we probably get about 50 or 60 applicants for people who are eligible. In other words, they've got the required background and experience. Um, they've got good write-ups from their current boss um, and they're in a position where they're, they're able to go. So there are three, three criteria there really. And then out of those 50 or 60 pilots, the team themselves, the nine guys, will sit around a room and discuss them. And they'll whittle that, that list down to nine. And the reason it's nine is because we can invite, invite them over. They can all fly in the back seats. Um, and over the period of a week, they'll go through um, a formal interview, um, a flying test. Um, but most importantly, and I think you'll appreciate this, you're getting to know the individuals. So during that week, you'll chat to them in the crew room, we'll go down the pub and have a few beers and you get to see what they're like as an individual and whether they're going to fit into your team. So you've then got some indicators, you've got your results of your flying test, um, you've got the results of the formal interview, but most importantly, are they going to fit in as part of the team? They'll fly in the back seat so they can see what it's like to be a member of the Red Arrows and then at the end of the week, we'll all sit back down again together and from that, that, that list of nine, will come up with, uh, with three. And it's often really close by virtue of the fact they're there, they could probably all do the job. Mm. Um, so it's a really difficult choice and sometimes it comes down to a vote, mm. but that's how it works. So we're effectively picking who we're going to be working with for the next few years. And um, it's worked well over, over 50 years now, the Red Arrows have been going and it's, and it's generally worked well, really well. So I'm guessing a, lot, a big part of that selection is the bit in the pub. Definitely. Definitely, because you want somebody who's going to put the needs of the team ahead of the needs of themselves. So I'll give you an example. So at the end of a, a long day, uh, you've done two or three flights, you're really tired. All you want to do is go to the pub and have a beer. And um, 
you know, somebody says, we've got to go meet the mayor or sign some brochures for somebody. And you want somebody who's going to be quite happy to do that rather than, than have a moan and, and disappear off. So, so there is, you know, there are lots of things that, that happen outside the flying. Um, and we need the sort of people who are going to going to join in and are not going to be bothered by that sort of thing. And they're really well received, the Red Arrows, aren't they, wherever they go? Uh, I've seen them from my house window here, just flying out over the over the sea. Yeah. Um, I've been driving to air shows and they, they've flown past and it's Stop the car. There's the Red Arrows. <laughs> I think it's part of British culture now, isn't it? A bit like Concord was or, you know, it's, it's part of our heritage now. And I think, um, well, we do when we're flying around the UK and, or abroad, we're effectively selling UK PLC. So, yes, we're representing the we're representing the RAF, we're representing the armed forces, but we're also representing something that I think is truly iconically British, don't you? Mm. It must be a bit nice everywhere you go. You are stealing the show, aren't you? Well, I like to think so. It's quite interesting when you go in and there's perhaps one of the American teams or one of the European teams. So there's always a little bit of friendly competition and you're looking at each other to see if you can perhaps pinch any manoeuvres that they do. So it's a healthy competition. But um, yeah, we do pride ourselves, I suppose, on, on striving for excellence every time. And any well i was gonna say any near misses but i mean you've you've had fatalities in in the red arrows haven't you yeah there have been you know if you put yourself in an airplane turn it upside down close to the ground with nine other aircraft it's it's you know it's dangerous business and we try to mitigate that by training obviously six months of the year is spent training and i'm sure in your in your jobs in the military it's all training isn't it um, but of course, it's still a dangerous job. And um, for various factors, whether it's human error, mechanical error, weather, um, things are going to happen. So over the period of 50 odd years, there have been a few accidents. When you consider what we're doing, it's actually relatively few, relatively few. Um, and certainly during my three years, we, we were lucky enough not to have any. Um, but, uh, you know, in any walk of life, Chris, I think this is, is going to happen. The only way to... Not to have that happen to you would be to sit at home, wouldn't it, and wrap yourself in cotton wool, which I know yeah. you and I, we're not, uh, we're not going to do that. Well, it's undoubtedly, you know, if you're going to go, go, go in a red arrow. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to check out of this world. It's not a bad way to go, is it? Go doing something you love. Yes. But the, the thing that's coming into my mind, though, is I've seen... Um, when you get the disaster, when you get the fatality, but it's a disaster at an air show, and um, I don't know if that's happened to the Red Arrows, but there's certainly it, it, you're probably familiar with this in the states. You get these sometimes quite aging aircraft. Yes, they're hugely kind of um, customized, so that they're all upgraded. But then you get one rivet that's still from like 1955. Yeah. That rivet's going like this over you know the best part of 50, 50, 60 years. And when it goes and that aircraft, you know, comes down on the crowd or whatever, it's um... yeah. They've mitigated it over the years. I mean, there have been accidents where um, you know, people in the crowd have sadly been been killed. And um the way they've mitigated it now is to stop any sort of crossing maneuvers, 
towards the crowd. So any velocity vector towards the crowd has been stopped. So it's, I think it's as safe as, as it's going to be now. Um, but, you know, people love going to see aeroplanes, air shows, the noise, the smell of the jet engines. I don't think we're going to stop air shows at all. Um, and, I, and we've just got to make it as safe as we can. So when you're out on the town then and you're trying to, um, let's say, uh, attract members of the opposite, well, or members <laughs> of the same sex, you know, whatever your thing is, do, do you say that you're a Red Arrow pilot or do you say you're, you're a Royal Marine? Of course I say I'm a Royal Marine, obviously. <laughs> I knew it. No, we're, we're, I think we're both too modest, aren't we? <laughs> we could say I say I'm in aluminium tubing or something like that, you know. <laughs> Is that a thing though in, in the Marines? The guys, I don't know why, but guys will go out and they would say they're brickies. <laughs> yeah, um, I, don't, I don't think I, I'd never go out and say I'm a Red Arrows pilot. Yeah. <laughs> no. no, what's um, what's the kind of silliest thing that a, a civilian's ever said to you? Have they got some sort of preconceived ideas? Or there's always the usual questions on you know, uh, uh, and kids always ask you know have you ever been in a crash they always ask you that have you ever had a crash it's something that kids really love because i do talks to schools and things it's you know how fast does it go how high does it go and have you had, ever had a crash but um i always as, as you do when you do a talk i always invite questions at the end uh, and people honestly come up with some brilliant questions mm. questions that I, I love answering questions because hopefully i know a little bit more about it than they do but sometimes i come up with great questions um, and I love that bit, interacting with, um, with the public, uh, particularly after a tour. Um, it's great, really, really good. When people ask me questions, I think, what are they asking me for? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to know, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> Got that imposter syndrome thing. Yeah, well, she's done that. It is fun. You, I guess there is a little bit of that, but um, there is always an answer in there, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. 747s then that's mm. that's something else again because when you leave the royal air force are, are you technically you're not a commercial pilot are you you're you're a military pilot yeah with, with a private pilot's license i don't know what do they, do they add the jet function to the no it's um it's quite a lengthy, lengthy process, Chris, actually. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. So my experience was all fast jet, Lightning's Hawks, which has got nothing to do with flying 747. So what you have to do is upgrade that PPL, that private pilot's license, into what's called an ATPL, which you've probably heard of, Airline Transport Pilot's License. So it involves a load of exams, aerodynamics, electrics, all the usual stuff. Um, and I had to do an instrument rating as well on a small twin-engined airplane called an Aztec. It's just a light airplane, effectively. But I'd never flown one before, so this was quite difficult. And then with that license and your background, you have to have the license, really, before applying to any airline. So once you've got that license, you can then go out and look for jobs. And I left the Air Force in 1998. It's a difficult decision, you know, because I really enjoyed it. But... I think had I stayed on and made a career of it, you spend less and less time flying and more time sat behind a desk. It's the same in the Marines, isn't it? If you stay in, that's what tends to happen. It's less front line, it's more office. And I just didn't fancy that. So quite a few of my friends had joined the airlines and I thought, 
it sounds pretty good. Obviously, the flying's not going to be quite as exciting, but certainly as a lifestyle, great. And I still get to fly. So, um, so I wrote to, to British Airways, Virgin, all the big airlines in the sort of late 80s. And I was lucky enough to be accepted by, well, I was accepted by, by both. And I picked BA and joined BA in 19, uh, 1998. So with my little airline transport pilot's license. So I went from a Hawk through the Aztec doing my instrument rating to the 747, which was quite a big step. My gosh. And BA and uh, Virgin were quite rivals back in the day, weren't they? They were. Well, they were, I suppose they still are in a way, you know, competing for transatlantic routes and things. So uh, competition's good though, isn't it? It's yeah, I think it, it might have been Richard Branson's biography that I read that the chairman of BA said, I'll never enter negotiations with anyone that doesn't wear a tie. <laughs> And of course, Richard Branson's response as well, you, you should have done. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, fierce rivals, I think, for years. Yes, yes. I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm not too happy with uh, Mr. Branson at the minute. He's, um, his healthcare companies have been going into primary schools. Um, that's a whole nother thing again, but I think a lot of people know, know what I'm on about. Yeah. Um, Andy, yeah, amazing. I'm the guy when I'm sat on the, um, when I'm on an international flight, I'm hoping that the stewardess is going to say, can anyone fly a plane? And <laughs> I'll get my five minutes of fame <laughs> crash, crashing it into the ground. But, um, yeah, I just find the whole thing. Yeah. Fascinating. It's a shame, isn't it? Because you know, the last six months or so has really devastated the the industry, particularly the the airline industry, flying passengers around. People are not they're not flying. And so, you know, hundreds of my colleagues worldwide have been grounded, they've lost their jobs. It's a really tough time for, for the aviation industry. Um, so much so that um uh, I've I've moved on actually. I'm still flying 747s, Chris, but I'm now uh, working for a cargo company. I'm the chief pilot for a company called Longtail Aviation um, because there's a huge demand for, for, for cargo. Mm. Passenger planes fly, passengers obviously, but in the hold, there are tons of cargo. Now with those aircraft on the ground effectively not flying, that cargo still needs to be moved around. Um, and so I saw the writing on the wall in the summer and I, I took the hopefully sensible decision to, to move on. And, and so I'm still very busy, but. I, I do really feel for um, for the avian, for the industry as a whole. It's it's been decimated the last six months. Yeah, very very old friend of mine, Colette. Hello, if you if you ever get to watch this, she was with Virgin for best part. Well, I bet I better not say how many how many years, but you know, <laughs> since school basically, she's she'd um, been a. What's the right terminology these days? We used to say hostess and you don't say that anymore, do you? Cabin crew, student. Cabin crew, I'm sorry, yep. apologies everybody. That's, <laughs> that's not me being um, um, <laughs> inappropriate. It's, my brain doesn't work sometimes. Cabin crew's good. Cabin crew, yeah. So she was cabin crew and absolutely loved it. Yeah. Loved it. And to see that, that um, you know, all these folks are getting laid off yeah it's really sad really sad yes 
So how is it then? How's it flying? I mean, it's a totally different experience from what you're used to. It really is, Chris. It really is. Um, I remember the first time I was shown into the, the cockpit of one. And of course, you've seen it. It's just buttons and switches everywhere. You just think, how on earth am I going to know what they do? But of course you do. You learn. You go into the simulator again and again and practice checks and emergencies and it's all very procedurally driven it's very very good uh, standard operating procedures which i'm sure you've heard of in in marines it's the same you know we we do it all the time um but as an airplane it's fantastic the 747 i think is the last airplane that certainly boeing threw money at when they built it so it's solid it's got a lot of redundancy built in um for the cabin crew, the galleys, the kitchens are big, purpose-built, um, and the cockpit's actually quite small, although it's really, it's really cosy in there. It does the job. Uh, it's a great aeroplane. It's really, it, it's a thrill to fly it. I still, when I walk around doing the external check, we have a, a walk around outside. You still look up and in awe and think, "Wow, this is a big machine." Yeah, I'm glad you said that. You, you still appreciate the yeah the majesty in it. Yeah, definitely. It's funny though, when you look into an airline cockpit, um, airline cockpit, airliners cockpit. Yeah, yeah. It, it's still very, some of them are quite antiquated, aren't they? It, mm. it almost looks like a blooming dentist chair in there or something. Yeah. Tiny yeah. and there's, um, you kind of have this image that you're going to look in, there's going to be some sort of like palatial couch and, <laughs> and uh, you know, leather leather clad steering steering column or, or or whatever in it but it's very it's it almost sort of vintage is maybe the word yeah the, the 747 certainly is 80s technology so you'd um it does look old now compared to some of the more modern boeings and airbuses um but it's still a thrill to fly it's an iconic airplane certainly some of the bigger uh, airlines have decided to ground them for for cost reasons really i mean it's an expensive airplane to run and i think with the passenger numbers as low as they are it makes a lot of sense um but for me i'm still lucky enough to be able to hop into one every every so often with the cargo um and it is it's 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 a great airplane it really is yeah so there's three leaps there that when you're a fast jet pilot it you you're on the money, aren't you? You know, you're on the, literally on the controls. And, but when you go to an airliner, it's more systems-based, isn't it? You're yes. pushing buttons to control systems, which ultimately fly the plane. But you've always got the, the option to take control in an emergency, right? Yeah. So we always do the, the takeoff is always hand-flown, either the captain or the first officer. We usually take it in turns. Um, and I would say 99% of the landings as well, because we need the practice. So we take the, you take off about five minutes into the flight, you put the autopilot in because the autopilot flies the airplane really accurately. Um, and it's tiring, you know, if you're going to go across the Atlantic, you don't want to be sat there like this for, for seven hours. So it flies it very accurately for you. And you just input, as you said, you know, on the, on the control panel uh, or through the flight management computer, you make some, changes so it will fly you there and then on the approach into landing into new york or boston or wherever you're going you take the autopilot out and you do 
do the landing. And the only time we wouldn't do that is if it's really foggy and the aircraft can land itself in, in fog, which is nice to know. But um, that's the only time we would let the aeroplane land itself. Other than that, we always do the landing. Your heart must be a bit like that in fog then. Thinking... Well, do you know what? It's, it's really strange putting your faith in the aeroplane mm. and you can't see, you literally can't see anything until you feel the wheels touch down and then you start to see the runway lights go past. Uh, yeah, it's quite unnerving. First time you do it, it's quite unnerving. Mm, I bet. I had one recently, it was um, landed at Heathrow in, in the fog. The aircraft did a great job, stopped on the runway, but it was so foggy we couldn't see to taxi off the runway. Had to get a, a follow me car to come and park by the nose wheel and we followed him off the runway. It was just, the visibility was so bad. You don't, you don't want to be stuck on a runway too long, do you? No, you don't. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What's it called when you slip the plane slightly sideways, like sort of crabbing it in? What, what, what's the... Um, yeah, side slip. Yeah. Side slip, yeah. What, I used to do that. When I, when I came up to land on the... Am I using the right terminology? Land on the runway? Yeah. Yeah. So when I came up to land on the runway, if I was too high... I used to give it, was it left rudder and right stick, something yeah. like that? Yeah, you can get rid of the height by doing that. Yeah. You can't really do that in a 747, but you can in a light aircraft. Well, the reason I mention it is I saw one of these air crash investigation programs, or that, that type of show, and the pilot actually did. He, he'd lost all, um, all the sort of systems, all the, he was down to basically, he had to fly the plane himself. Yeah. And he had one shot at hitting this this runway. That was it. And yeah. he 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 crabbed an airliner in. It was um okay. Yeah, it was it woof. Yeah. It's not a technique we use very often. No. <laughs> no. For people listening, it's it's this configuration you can put an aircraft in where it will lose height really quickly because of the, the airflow, obviously over the wings um and so if you come into an air to land and you're way too high you can quickly just do this opposite thing and you can lose a lot lot of height and and then you level off again and and, and you're, you're you're good to go is it is it um is it better not having a sort of a whole load of people on board when you're flying cargo it's different you know um I didn't realise how differently because I've only been doing this for a few months, but um, in many ways it's easier. You don't have to keep, keep apologising for being late. You don't have to keep explaining yourself. You have to make your own tea, though. That's a bad thing. <laughs> um, but no, it is, it's different. So we fly with two or three pilots, depending on the length of the flight. We have a, a loadmaster who makes sure that all the cargo is loaded correctly, you know, um, in terms of dangerous goods or the weight is all distributed evenly um, and we have a flight engineer as well who looks after the aircraft when we land so there's usually five of us there but um no it's really different actually it's in many ways i quite like it <laughs> yeah yeah what um what stories have you got from the, your sort of um passenger side of things so you must have had a few scare stories and incidents over the years do you know what so when i when i started doing this somebody said to me the airplanes are pretty good so most of the problems you'll encounter 
are going to be to do with either cabin crew or passengers. Um, and that's proved the case, that really has. So um, I'll give you an example. And I think this is a true story, Chris. So on one of the flights, um, there was a call to the, to the flight crew to say that one of the passengers was, was really ill, right down the back of the airplane. It's quite an old guy and he, he was really not in a good way. Now we can call on a satellite phone and get medical advice, which we did. And um, the, um, we, we passed this on to the steward who was looking after this passenger. Um, and he called back and he said, I, th I think the guy's died. So, so this was in the days of when we had a flight engineer on board the passenger airplane as well. So we sent the flight engineer back and um, he confirmed that this guy had he sort of died in his seat. He was quite old and I think he'd had underlying issues. So they thought, well, out of respect, rather than just leave him in his, this seat, there was a little bit more room towards the front of the aircraft. So they thought, well, let's go and take him there and um, out of the way of everybody else. So the steward and the flight engineer, they were sort of trying to maneuver this, uh, this poor chap through the, through the, through the uh, cabin. So they, they got him through the economy cabin and the halfway through the club cabin, they could see quite a few people were looking around, obviously getting a little bit disturbed about it. So the flight engineer, they stopped, he looked around and said, did anybody else have the fish? <laughs> yeah i could imagine all the all the veterans on the plane would have been laughing at that one and everyone else would have been yeah and one of the things we always get asked is you know how do you get an upgrade so people try all sorts of things uh to get an upgrade um and there was uh, there was one occasion I thought the cabin crew dealt with this brilliantly. So it's quite a large Jamaican lady sat in her seat. And, and next to her was this quite sort of obnoxious businessman in his sort of shiny suit. And he called the cabin crew over and said, you know, I can't sit next to this, this woman. Um, and he started having a moan about her. And so the cabin crew said, leave it with me, sir. I'll just go and find out. We'll, we'll sort something out. So she disappeared off for a couple of minutes. Then she came back and she said, it's all been sorted, sir. Madam, if you'd like to come with me, we've got a nice seat for you. So he took the, took the uh, Jamaican lady off and gave her a nice seat and just left him where, he's, where he was. But you know what? People try all sorts of, of things to get an upgrade. They really do. Andy, how do you manage alcohol? Um, I love it. <laughs> but I mention it because it's been such a factor in my my whole yes. <laughs> my whole adult life yeah um i really had to manage it let's say yeah, yeah. and there's been many times where i failed miserably to, to manage it yeah yeah but i wasn't in charge of an airliner full of yes. people right with very strict rules yeah and the threat of even if someone got a whiff of it on my breath that's my whole career it's down a pan right yeah and yeah. quite 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 rightly so what how does it work then because i'm just going to throw a few things out here so yeah. I mean, veterans like yourself mass you know come from the military where drinking culture and subsequently alcoholism is, is a real factor for, for a significant mm. percentage yeah you've got the fact that 
as a pilot, you're sat around waiting an awful lot of the time, whether that be hotel rooms or departure lounges or, or crew crew lounges, this kind of thing. Yeah. You're also in that environment where alcohol is always around you, whether it's the bar or the duty-free shop or the, the hotel while you're waiting to, you know, for your for your taxi or whatever. Yeah. yeah. What, what what can you enlighten us as to sort of yeah. That's a really good question, Chris. And because, you know, rather like you, the military, as you said, is quite a hard, it's a hard, well, it was in those days, wasn't it? It's was quite a hard drinking, hard playing environment. Mm. Um, and yeah, it has to change when you, when you join an airline, because you're absolutely right, your job, and therefore your career, your livelihood is on the line. So, and I, you know, I love a glass of, of wine, uh, along with, with the best of my friends really and um the way we do it i suppose it's you just have to be self-disciplined we do have the rules the rules are there for a reason um of course there are people who have in the past broken the rules and there are quite a few people you know who've been found out but most people and all the people i've flown with are are sensible so if we'll go away i'll give you an example we go perhaps fly to new york one day we'll have that night and the next day in New York before flying back. So we'll go out for a, for a bite to eat, maybe have a couple of beers, but that'll be it. Uh, and you know then that you've got at least 12 hours before you're due to report for, uh, for flying. Um, and as I say, you have to be self-disciplined and all the guys I've flown with have all been really good about that. They'd even say, okay, yeah, we need to stop. Um, and it's in moderation before that too, you know, you just can't go and get, get hammered and then fly back the next day. It just, just doesn't work like that. You just can't do it. That's the thing about getting older though, isn't it? When you're, when you're in your twenties and, and again, you're in the forces. Yeah. You, it is that cliche. You go out yeah. hammered in the evening and then you're up for a run at, at eight o'clock the next morning or yeah. you're on guard duty or you're, you know, you're this, you're, very often carrying live you know weapon and ammunition now even just doing the sort of stuff i do now my writing and my podcasting and stuff gosh i realize i can't even really have a beer the night before now yeah yeah it, it just it just puts me off for the whole of the next day yeah you know i don't i stop enjoying what i do right yeah well um, that's an age thing then because that's the same with me <laughs> But yeah, it's 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 interesting, isn't it? That I'd imagine even as a Red Arrows pilot, so the best of the best, you could go out and I'm not suggesting people do, but maybe have eight beers the night before, and and you're fine the next morning. You're just you know good to go. But as you get older, it's it's just different. Yeah. Isn't it? You can't do it, can you? It's just it's just impossible. And, you know, we get time off um, at home between flights. So that's really when you can have a glass of wine with your dinner or a few beers. And, um, yeah, when you're away, you just just got to be sensible. So it's self-management. Um, and I'm sure there are people, you know, who, who, who can't do it. But it's your livelihood. So you, you do. Did it? Um, it always seems funny to me when people go to a country, whether they're just even on a commercial flight, and they go, oh, yeah, I stopped over in Hong Kong. Yeah, didn't leave the air, airport. And I'm like, dude, 
why didn't you just ask the travel company to give you 48 hours? Yeah. I mean, you've just missed out on one of the holy grails of travel locations and yeah. uh, the chance to have an experience. I mean, just two days in hot in Asia is going to blow your mind. Um, how is that as, as, as a pilot and air crew? Do, do people manage that differently? They, they do. And the thing is, with the flying I've done, we always get, I would say, a minimum of 24 hours wherever you're going. So... I've talked about the East Coast of America, haven't I? I mentioned Boston and New York before. So that would be a good example of where you would get 24 hours. Sometimes further afield, you get more, you get a couple of days. So your Hong Kong is a good example. We would fly there and have two days off before flying back because of the, you know, the length of the flight. You need that recovery time. So I've actually been really privileged, Chris, to have flown that map behind you um, pretty much all over the world, you know, um, South America, all over North America, Canada, Africa, Far East, Australia. So it's been a real privilege. I've, I've, I don't know if you have you seen one of these apps where you can add up the number of countries that you've been to. Yes, um, I did it the other it, day actually. Did you? Well, I've been, I've been to, um, I think it was something like seventy-five countries, and I thought, well, I wonder what that is in terms of how many countries in the world as a percentage. And you know what? So all that traveling, I thought I must have been to nearly everywhere. It was 26% of the world's countries. So you think there's still, I've still got all that to do. I always tell people I've traveled to over 80 countries, right? But when I added them up the other day, it's 87. Wow. But there is a caveat. Some of those countries are now no longer countries, which ah. might, that might sound crazy <laughs> to people listening, but you've got to remember that Hong Kong, you know, what was Hong Kong? It, it, it was Brit under British rule, but it was part of China. Now yeah. it's now it's under Chinese. I mean, I'd never say that Hong Kong is Britain's, you know, or England. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, uh, and then you've got places like Macau that was governed by Portugal, but now is, uh, I don't know if they're independent or under China. What I'm saying is places change and- Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But like you said, when the percentage it gives me on TripAdvisor is, I think it says you've seen 38% of the world, which is, and I would be the first to argue, no, I've probably seen about 0.03% of the yeah. world. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big place. But that brings me on to something um, as a pilot. I'm fascinated to ask you this. Are you familiar with the flat earth movement? I've, I have heard of it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Tell me more. Oh, okay. First of all, I just want to start. I welcome anybody questioning authority and the status quo. I think the last 20 years have shown us that what you see in the media isn't really the, the, uh, the, the truth of what goes on in the world, but I also think you, you have to be aware of when people are putting misinformation out there. And one of the theories out at the moment is the world isn't a globe, the world is a plane. So it's, it's flat, hence the term flat earth. Mm -hmm. And that Antarctica is not a continent. So for people like myself and, and my colleagues that have some of whom have skied across Antarctica, right? 
who would say no it's a continent when you get there there's rocks right it's it's a landmass the flat earth argument is that no we we've somehow been duped and that the antarctica is just a ring of an ice wall effectively around the edge of the planet to i'm guessing keep the water in and i'll be the first to say that the, the some of the arguments that are put out seem very convincing you know when they talk about water on the surface of a ball and why doesn't it fly off the earth and da 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 da, da. but bringing it back to the the pilot um connection it's very often it said why don't planes fly over antarctica and that is given as a reason why the earth is most likely flat i would say off the top of my head have you seen the size of it what if you had to crash land or or you had an emergency on but there's i mean antarctica it's got to be what the size of north america or 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 that thereabouts right yeah um i don't know i i well, we, do go, we do go pretty close to the Arctic, certainly the routes I do, not necessarily the Antarctic. But, for example, if we fly to the west coast of America, the map behind you, if you drew a line between the UK and the west coast, it would be straight across the Atlantic to, you know, I don't know, Seattle or somewhere like that. But the actual, on a globe, when you look at it, takes you up towards, we would go up to, from, from London, you'd probably head up to Scotland, Iceland, halfway up Greenland, and that's the shortest route on a circle, on a globe. So that's there's there's your proof to start with, really. Um, if you have a look at a globe and draw a line on a globe, that, that's where it'll take you. So we go pretty close to the Arctic on a trip to the west coast of America. Mm-hmm. Um, there aren't many flights that go right down south, you know, from the southern tip of South America, say to Australia, uh, across the Pacific, but they would probably go quite a long way south as well, I would suggest. So. So, yeah, I do go way up into the Arctic Circle when I'm doing routes like that. And routes from, you know, the UK to, I don't know, let's say somewhere in China. So even Hong Kong, but perhaps Shanghai or Beijing. You go way up over um, over Russia, way up over Siberia. And that is the shortest Great Circle route. Yeah, that's it. Um, there you go. Yes. <laughs> well, there, there, there will be... And uh, I'm not here to judge folks, but I'm just saying there'll be people that will argue with what you just said and yeah. and they will sound really com- convincing. Um, it's just kind of funny when, like I said, I've been to Antarctica, so no one can tell me it's not a continent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You, 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 like, I mean, and someone suggested I was on like a movie set that had been built by these uh, ultra rich, um, you know, psychopaths that run the planet <laughs> but <laughs> it, even the antarctic peninsula alone is about eight times the size of great britain yeah um yeah. certainly eight yeah. times the size of england it would be one hell of a movie set right but yeah there we go there we go well andy that oh the one last thing i wanted to ask you sure i saw a really fascinating video uh I think it was on YouTube not long back. And it was somehow suggesting that the amount of fuel that an airliner uses isn't as much as we've been led to believe. 
that once it's up there and the, the turbo jets are doing their, their thing, I won't pretend I know that they, they use very little fuel to keep them going, and, but it's more the influx of air that cleverly creates the power and I'm probably- Yeah, I mean, it uses, it's like any engine, so it'll use more, like a car when you've got your foot down, it's gonna use more fuel. So on takeoff and climb, it does, but engines that certainly newer engines with green technology, once the aircraft's in the cruise, you're absolutely right. They are using far less fuel than some of the older engines. So technology is moving on and, and there's some, some really good advances actually with um, solar energy, electric energy. But at the moment, even the, you know, the normal um, diesel powered engines are still relatively economical. The problem that the 747 has, it's got four of them. So it does use more, more fuel than, than you know, your more modern airplanes. But no, that's true. In the cruise, they do use, they do use less, absolutely. And one final thing, I believe you, you speak on cruise ships, is that right? I do, I do. They're called insight lectures on cruise ships. So I'll, I'll go and talk about my Red Arrows experience, my airline experience, and various history type uh, subjects, all to do with aviation, of course, um, to try and enlighten the passengers when we eventually get back to, to cruise cruising again, because of course that's all been uh, decimated as well. Yes, although ironically, you, you are kind of quarantined when you're on a ship. That's right, you are, <laughs> yeah. What What's the deal there then? Do they, do they pay for your whole, but I mean, pay, obviously you're, you're employed, but yes. do, do you get the whole cruise or do you just join them at a certain location? Well, I can do either. I tend to, to do the whole cruise. So, uh, and I do the talks when the ship is at sea. So of course, when you're in port, everybody goes off on various trips and things like that. So um, when the ship's at sea, I'll, I'll do a talk. And there are usually two or three guest speakers on board. So maybe on a transatlantic crossing, you know, you'd be talking each day. So you need to have a library of talks. I've got about 10, 10 different talks that I do. So I might see you on a cruise ship one day, Chris. I was going to say, if you, um, if you want someone to do your PowerPoint slides, I'm your man. No, I was thinking, but you'd be doing a talk as well. Mate, they won't ask people like me. Um, I think my, uh, my true life story is too... <laughs> it's, it's too out there. <laughs> yes, you know, I talk about reality and the sad factor alive is 98% of people don't want to live in reality. And it's a shame because it means mental health just gets yeah. shoved aside. Understanding addiction gets shoved aside. And they're both so important, aren't they? And I think, you know what, even at the end of all this, we're going to see that um, they're so much more important than we thought. Yeah, well, you know, we're all going to lose loved ones to mental health issues in, in yeah. years to come, especially yeah. probably off the back of what's going on now. Yeah, and, definitely. Um, but yeah, but uh, I don't know if there's any cruise ships out there. <laughs> <laughs> They're all parked up in um, Pool Harbour at the moment, I think. Yes, my gosh. I love being, I love being on a, I haven't really done so much cruises as in like a holiday yes um but i did go on an expedition ship to as i said to antarctica yeah which is technically like a you know it's very excellent service on board it was like being on a sort of cruise yes um and we sailed back from norway on a cruise liner okay 
And I've done things like, for example, get a ferry from Sweden to Iceland, which is a two, maybe a two and a half day crossing. Yeah. And again, that's kind of set up. I, I don't know where where you cross the line from being a ferry to a cruise. Yeah, but yeah. it gives you a flavour of it, doesn't it? Definitely. I love it, though, Andy. Yeah. I really, I, th I think it's because when you step, for, step foot on that ship, mm. all your stresses you just leave behind you. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's your home. You can't get off. You've just got to make the most of, of where you are. And it's great. I love it, too. Yes. <laughs> Well, I've certainly loved our talk, mate. Thank you ever so much. Hey, it's a pleasure. Um, just, my God, I'm just so lucky to meet people such as yourself. Mm. Um, massively um, good luck with everything. Thanks, Chris. Where's the best place to people to book you to speak? I've got my own website, actually, which is called uh, plainspeaking.co, just .co, not .com. Um, and I'm also with an agent called Champion Speakers. So either of those. So you can contact me at um, Andy. Okay, I'm just scrolling this down. Not that I couldn't find no, it uh, in internet search, but. Um, plain speaking. I'll put these below our video and on iTunes. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. No problem. So thank you again, Andy. Just, just stay on the line so I can thank you properly. To everybody at home, um, Big love to you all. Look after yourselves. Thank you for tuning in again. If you could like and subscribe, that would be wonderful. Or set the notification bell is something I've never asked anyone to do until today. So you're, it's a milestone in the Bought the T-Shirt podcast history. <laughs> it's such an exciting way that I live. Hit the bell. <laughs> Take care, everyone. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.